Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is former RAF intelligence analyst turned mental health coach Mike O'Hara. Mike's career was thriving in the military when he was suddenly struck down by severe anxiety. Coping with a mental health struggle in the no-nonsense macho environment of the military wasn't easy. But Mike eventually reached out for help found the support he needed and decided that he wanted to help others with similar problems. Now he's devoted his life to raising awareness of mental health in the military and in wider society. Mike's an inspiration who was recognised in the Queen's New Year's Honours list with a commendation for his work around mental health in the military. I love talking with him and I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Mike, welcome to The Reset. Thank you very much for having me, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here. Mike, I'm fascinated by your background in the RAF. Tell me about joining up to that when you were a young man. Oh, well, um, it's, it's something that um, I I kind of never really had a burning desire to be a military man or to be in the military or to wear the uniform and, you know, queen and country and all that kind of stuff. It never really occurred to me. I did have some family in the Air Force, so I had that kind of familial link to it. But um I really, I, I went to school, I had a very normal kind of um, comfortable upbringing. Um, rural Essex is where I grew up, very loving family, friends, played a lot of football, a lot of sport, things like that. And I came to a bit of a junction as a lot of young men do when they kind of do GCSEs, A-levels, wasn't ready for university. And I, and I was looking for a job, really. Um, and I say this to people now, the Air Force were the guys who kept calling me back for more interviews. So um, that's really how I got got into it. And just through, like a lot of people do, I suppose, you know, throwing your, your net quite widely. And the thing that always appealed to me was the job, though, really. I worked in my military career um, as an intelligence analyst. Um, so the job sounded quite exciting um, and quite interesting. So that was what appealed to me. And I got a bit of a shock, actually, when I got there. And there were all these rules and regulations and ranks and saluting and uniform and all this kind of stuff that 
I never really got to grips with, to be honest. I served 12 years and that was never really the thing that I loved, but the job was really interesting to me and, and I wouldn't change it. You know, I had some fantastic experiences in the Air Force. What do you think it um, it does for young people in terms of the development of their mental health? Do you think that that discipline and order is a good thing overall? I think it is, yeah. I think that, I think as human beings, um, whatever you're interested in, whatever walk of life you're in, we like feeling part of something bigger, I think. I think that's something that's very important to our mental health and well-being. And, and the sort of work I do now, I try to convey that to people that, Yes, it's really important to have all of those fundamentals in place, you know, thinking about your your diet, exercise, your sleep, having a support network of professionals to support you. But I think one of the things we often underestimate is the power of like, the collective, I suppose. Um, and, and being in the military, it gives you an identity straight away, I suppose. It gives you a cause. It gives you contemporaries, people of a similar age around you, people of a similar background, um, and you're all sort of pulling in the same direction. And then you've got the structure aspect as well that you mentioned. Um, so, you know, the routine, routine, something we know is very important to your mental health because it gives you a sense of control, you know, the, the same things in the same place every day, you know what it's going to look like, you know what it means for you and you know how it's going to benefit you. So actually it gives you um, a lot in that respect. So I think it, it molds you in, in one way. And I think as a young man, it, it really helped me. Um, I think that the, the negative side of it, if I can just um, give a bit of my personal insight on that and my own experience was, Actually, particularly in the trade I was in, in intelligence work, you're often working as an individual. So you're often kind of like augmented to other sections or organizations. Or if you deploy away overseas, you often do it as a, as a kind of single entity. And the isolation and the, the moving around a lot was something that, that I certainly found quite difficult to deal with. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, there's pluses and minuses, definitely. But um, I think in the main, it was, it was beneficial, certainly in the early part of my career. So, Mike, I might as well just ask you this. Um, were you a spy? <laughs> uh, no, no, very much not. Now, I know when you say you worked in intelligence, people have yeah grand delusions about the fact that I was James Bond and uh, all that kind of stuff. But no, I was a computer geek like anyone else. I sat in front of a computer and, and there was an office-based job for the, for the majority. There is a lot of stuff that you know I would have looked at. Uh, very pertinent today um, in terms of what's happening at the moment in terms of Russia and Ukraine as we speak today, you know, looking at what's going on in the world, monitoring it, trying to provide assessments to our lords and masters and decision makers. But I wouldn't go as far as spy, mate. No. Right. Okay. <laughs> but high pressure, high pressure, I guess, um, very intense work, uh, which of course will, will have an impact on, on, on your mental health. And also, I assume, might be wrong, but I assume that working in any wing of the military, it can be a very macho place where there isn't a huge amount of room for, uh, I guess, you know, open expression of, of feelings, emotions and so forth. Is that right? Yeah, I'd 100% go along with that. I mean, um, yes, the, the, the pressure aspect um, I think that there's a lot of self-induced pressure as well. You know, you, I worked when, in my first part of my career, probably when I started to experience uh, challenges with my own mental health. Um, I was at a point when I was a number of, or amongst a large number of other people doing a similar job of a similar kind of age and demographic to me. So it's quite competitive as well, because mm -hmm. you want to be the one to push yourself above and to, to, to be noticed really and to be recognized with things like promotions and, you know, the more juicy projects to get your head stuck into it and the more kind of exciting deployments away maybe to, to get, you know, your face in the right place. And yeah, there's a lot of pressure that goes with that. Also, I suppose when you step back and look at the, 
the decisions that you're part of life and death decisions you know um i worked um in in several kind of um looking at several operations where you know there were decisions made on where we might you know drop weapons on certain people on certain locations as part of the campaigns we're in i've worked you know on libya and uh, iraq and syria and afghanistan all those kind of things so now when i step back and look at it as slightly older and wiser i think wow i just seem to bounce all the way through that without ever really thinking about what we were doing or or the results of that or my part in it mm. so i think that was that's something i've reflected a lot on and you probably don't account for the impact it can have at the time and then as you said macho it's it's loads of lads together predominantly um you know you look at the demographics that join up to the military it is mostly men of a certain age and background a lot of working class males pulled together it's actually you know it's not the typical place where you'd stop and talk about the fact you're feeling a little bit anxious or perhaps things are making you feel a little bit low or you're worrying about things or you know you're certainly not going to tear up and cry in front of the rest of your your squadron or your platoon or whatever it might be um so yeah difficult a difficult space to have those conversations i think in the main um you, you you did quite well. You, you you know you were promoted. You were thriving yeah. at quite a young age, yeah. but you've told me that the you know the further you went, the more pressure you felt under. Uh, how did that manifest itself? When did you begin to realise that you might have mental health issues? Yeah, it's really it's got sort of out of the blue for me a little bit. As I say, I've been very very lucky in my life. I've been very lucky in the background that I've had growing up. A very loving family. Um, great friends that I still have now, you know, playing lots of sport, lots of communal stuff. Um, and I moved from that position, um, sort of mid-20s now looking at, and, and I was promoted into a new role in, in, a, in a headquarters where there was lots of sort of senior ranks around me, lots of big decisions being made. And I was still relatively junior in, in the grand scheme of things. So I was kind of on my own. Um, and that isolation really started to take its toll. I wasn't particularly enjoying the job at the time. I felt like, well, I've been promoted, so I've got to do you know, more important work and I've got to contribute more, but actually I'm feeling quite kind of limited in what I am able to provide. And I was at that age, you know, lots of lads will find when they hit 25, looking towards 30 maybe, that, you know, their pals back at home are moving on, they're getting married, they're having kids, you know. So when I was going back home of a weekend, I wasn't really having that kind of social engagement. And I quickly became very isolated. And I see a lot of parallels actually to what a lot of us have experienced during the lockdowns as well in the, the impact isolation can have on you. So I wasn't enjoying the work. I was quite isolated at the time. Um, and I started to notice actually the physical symptoms of what later transpired to be an anxiety disorder first. I was getting sort of uh, stomach was churning, feeling quite nauseous. I was feeling dizzy. Um, and I really was just feeling quite shit, to be honest, going into work every day. Uh, and I was finding that of, a, of an evening, I just wanted to grab some dinner and then get back to my room. I was in kind of barrack accommodation at the mm. time and shut the door and get behind that door. And when I was behind that door, I felt like I can breathe now. Um, and I sort of convinced myself something physically was wrong with me, which in and of itself isn't very helpful if you are someone who's you know prone to a bit of anxiety. Uh, so I sort of presented to the doctor, first of all, when I did seek some help, uh, not soon enough, but I did seek some help. And I said, I think there's something physically wrong with me. And I started to talk to, to this doctor and it transpired. There's lots of other things that I was doing in terms of my behaviors at the time, the way I was avoiding things, the, the way I was thinking about stuff. I was withdrawing myself away from people, which is always mm. something to look out for if you know there's someone you're concerned about. And, and basically, I got this diagnosis of uh, generalized anxiety disorder, which a doctor sort of once described it to me as you, you can get to the point where you're worrying about worrying. And then if you're not worrying, 
you're worrying about why you're not worrying. So you just yeah. get into this really vicious cycle of anxiety. I know that and, feeling, yeah. Yeah, and it's hor- and it was horrible, and it was horrible. It was prohibiting me from doing all the things I wanted to do, you know, feeling like I could engage with my mates. Um, it was difficult for my, my new girlfriend at the time, now my wife, which actually, again, I think I was really lucky that she came along at that time. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was really impactful. In my experience, I have to say, I found anxiety a lot more difficult to deal with than the episodes of depression that I've experienced, just because anxiety for me has been a much more constant in my life. It's kind of bubbling under the surface, Mm. Um, whereas the depression has been horrible, but it's been episodic, you know, it's come and it's gone. Um, So that's my personal experience, but that's definitely when it started to to kind of manifest and, and caught me quite unawares. And like a lot of blokes, I'm sure, and like a lot of people, I knew nothing about mental health issues really at the time. It's something that had never been kind of relevant to my life, but um, it showed to me, and I now look back at it, that it can it can affect anyone. You know, a subtle thing can change in your life. Someone who's been completely resilient up to that point, not had any cause to worry about it, and you get caught totally off guard. And, and yeah, and it, it, it wasn't a good time, I have to say. So did the doctor you originally spoke to identify that there was something going on mentally quite quickly? Yeah, I think so. I think I thought I was... Um, I think I thought I had it all together. And I remember going in, talking about my, my stomach upset, whatever it was. And I remember the doctor looking at me and saying, are you always this twitchy? <laughs> and I remember <laughs> laughing and because obviously my leg was going and my hands were wringing my hands yeah. and all this kind of stuff. Um, uh, and again, we, we don't have a great deal of understanding around how mental health can affect us. And often the last person to realize something's wrong is the individual themselves and the yeah, he, he, he clocked it pretty early, I have to say. He looked at me, took one look at me and said, you, you seem extremely agitated. Um, and um, yeah, we got into the conversations. And, and I was very, very lucky, I have to say, in terms of um, the, the signposting that he was able to do to uh, the Defence uh, Centre for Mental Health, which is something that the forces do have. And they have some very good support in place. Um, you, because of things like, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, the campaign, even the Falklands, mm. you know, the... the uh, the onset illnesses that, that people have experienced in the things they've been involved in. So I was quite lucky to get that signposting quite quickly. But this was not linked to trauma. Uh, what, what do you think with the, I mean, obviously it's a complex issue, but, but looking back as you start to unpick your feelings, what, what mm-hmm. do you think it was linked to? Yeah, I think that's a really important point to make, actually, Sam, because when I now talk to people about my my lived experience and I mentioned I've got that military connection, immediately everyone assumes, understandably, that, you know, it's PTSD, that it's mm. some sort of trauma-induced um, kind of condition. And I think, actually, it's useful for me to say, well, look, I am someone, I am a bloke, you know, I've done what is traditionally a fairly kind of macho job, I suppose, maybe not as an intelligence analyst, but more broadly within the military, mm. and they expect me to be some kind of quivering, shell-shocked, guy who's experienced something traumatic but actually for me I think it was the isolation and I think that is something that the military is starting to look at and needs to look at in terms of you know the way in which people are expected to move around a lot of the time to you know acclimatize to new situations quite quickly often on their own being cut off from a support network as well so you know inevitably you work away from where my family and friends were a couple of hours away Uh, my girlfriend at the time she was up in Birmingham so she was a couple of hours away from where I was Um, my friends that I'd made, all these kind of things. So I think it was low job satisfaction combined with probably being always had it there, always had that anxious disposition. And then the isolation. I found the isolation really, really hard, I have to say. So what did the doctor prescribe? Where where did he point you to? 
So uh, initially I was prescribed with uh, sort of beta blockers. So a lot of those who've experienced anxiety may have had something similar. Um, I think it's propranolol was the name of the, the exact drug that I was prescribed. And that was basically designed to control like the adrenaline release. You know, it's used mm. for a lot of heart conditions and things like that. And I remember he gave it to me and he, I was quite keen on my running and football at the time. And he said, just be careful if you try and exert yourself on these because they're essentially stopping the release of adrenaline. So you're almost fighting right you what your heart's doing so that scared me so actually i didn't stay on them for very long um most of it was kind of directed towards uh, cognitive behavioral therapy eventually mm. um so talking therapies trying to unpick why i was worrying about the things i was worrying about and really what it came down to was i remember a therapist kind of you know there's all the the fancy terminology and training that i'm sure these guys do but i remember this this lady just saying to me what's the worst that can happen let's start with that and because every time there was any kind of situation, even the most minor things, you know, driving somewhere for the first time or going on holiday, I used to dread holidays because it was something looming up ahead and I just wanted it done and out the way because any ambiguity or uncertainty just terrified me. Mm. And I would always leap to the worst possible conclusion. And I know a lot of people struggle with this, uh, particularly right now, you know, today what's going on in the news or the pandemic. Mm. There's been so many what ifs that you try and deal with. And essentially she sat me down and said, let's work through what the worst thing that could happen is in this situation in reality and then what would you do as a result and when you sit down and look at it in the cold light of day a lot of the things that we we fixate on actually we necessarily can't control or even if we can that they appear quite minor when you apply a bit of perspective but the worst place to spend my time was always between my ears on my own you know mm. sat on my own these things just grow in your mind um, mm. and, and I found that really difficult to deal with I have to say and when you took that first step to you know go into therapy taking medication mm-hmm. was it difficult was there any stigma or shame involved in that 100 100 um personally you know self-induced stigma and pressure i remember chatting to my mum who does have um, her own experiences in a similar vein i remember saying i don't want to take the medication i don't want to because then it's a thing isn't it you're you're on i'm on medication for this now it's a real thing it's something that you know, it's on my record as well. In the military, you're always terrified of anything that can set you apart or set you back or limit your promotion or your deployability or your ability to do certain jobs. So later on in, in my experience, when I, I start to take antidepressants, for example, I then can't handle a weapon. Um, you're not allowed to handle a weapon if you take antidepressants. So straight away, when there's activities, you know, yearly training, when I have to pick up that rifle and remember how to use it and how to take it apart and put it back together and clean it and all that stuff we have to do. Thankfully, not too much in the Air Force. Um, uh, I'm not allowed to do it because I'm on antidepressants. So all of that is whizzing through your mind when you think I've got to start taking this medication. Also, because I was um, accessing support through the military, I was having to take time out of work to drive two hours and back to a different base to actually have my cognitive, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So that's nearly a full day out of work. So I've got to then come forward to my chain of command, maybe the people who wonder where I am during the working day and say, yeah, well, I've got to drive off to whatever station it is, whatever medical center it is to, to get some therapy. And, and I hid that. I didn't tell anybody, to be honest. Um, I, I covered it up as, as best I could. And then I was dreading going to the, uh, the facility because it was on a, an RAF station where I knew a lot of other people. So I would worry if I saw a contemporary, a friend, an old colleague, and they'd say, what are you doing here, Mike? And I'd have to quickly make up an excuse because I didn't want them to know I was going to see the quack or whatever mm. you know, I felt at the time. So yeah, that's, that's an aspect I found really difficult. And you know what? I was talking to someone the other day about the fact that I take antidepressants. And I found myself saying, yeah, I take antidepressants, but only a low dosage. 
So even now, yeah. I felt the need to, to quantify it and to downplay it. Even yeah. now, you know, this is my job. I talk about mental health in the work I do now. I still, there's something conditioned in me to feel like I had to downplay it and say, yeah, I only take a low dose. Um, so, yeah, it's, there's something in us, isn't there, I think, that, that conditions us to feel yeah, like this isn't I, I something we should talk about. I think a lot of what you're saying, I, I can really relate to that the sort of just an instinctive reason, an instinctive sort of desire to keep it to yourself and to keep yeah. it private. But also that thing of, you know, the anxiety when left alone, just to float yeah. around and grow between your ears is, is like, it's such a, an amazingly powerful, like almost like a virus that can just grow and grow and grow if you leave it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, you're talking about holidays and stuff. Like that. I'm actually glad you say that, say that because that's one of the things that for years really like sent me into a tailspin. But I was particularly ashamed to ever admit because I thought it made you look really pathetic if you mm. like were getting scared about going on holiday, which is yeah. you know one of the most fun things you can do. Um, so yeah, there's so much I can relate to in what you're saying, but. Um, was the big step, it, it, you know, after this initial stuff with therapy and medication, actually making the decision to leave the RAF? Was that a mental health decision? Um, I would have to say in part, I think. I think in part. I think by the time I decided to leave, I was doing... I was doing actually a lot better and, and no, I would say I was doing well because I was starting to get involved in a lot of the stuff that I'm doing now. And I was starting to get involved in a lot of giving back, I hope to the RAF in terms of trying to improve our understanding as military personnel and the, the provision within the RAF in my little way. But I think in, I say in part because since I have left feeling more grounded and settled has been a big benefit to me i think the the transient nature of the air force the moving around the not knowing the fact that you always have an element of uncertainty hanging over you i mean again i'm talking about the events that are happening in the news today with russia and ukraine but i know that i'll have lots of mates out there who are still in who are now wondering am i going to have to go somewhere what's my shift pattern going to look like am i going to have to leave my family for a period you know what's this going to look like for me and i think as a as a job that's what you sign up for you know the travel and the the different experiences and the adventure. But for me, um, I think having that hanging over me, you know, potentially wanting to start a family with my wife, Abby, you, you're thinking about, am I going to have to move kids around all the time? All those what ifs just become magnified, I think, in the, mm -hmm. in the military um, lifestyle. So I think it's not the primary contributor for me because I, I have to say the support I got was good um, and um, I was able to get a, a good understanding of it by that stage. But I certainly wouldn't be in a rush to kind of... Um, embrace that amount of uncertainty again because i don't think it, it sits terribly well with me one thing i skipped uh, that i wanted to ask you about was a, a big moment in you opening up about your mental health mm -hmm. um which was a, a a meltdown on your stack can you tell me a bit yeah. more about that yeah so um so i had that initial experience of the anxiety disorder which as i say has been a fairly constant presence um i then um subsequently had a uh, um, a couple of years on when I was sort of still recovering, but, but managing okay uh, on and off. I had a bad knee injury. I, I snapped my ACL playing football. Um. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, and um, a particularly bad one that resulted in uh, three, three operations or sort of knee construction type stuff. Mm. Um, and I was at home on my own and, and I was in a leg brace for four months, just kind of, you know, on, on the sofa. And that was probably when I hit my, my lowest with my mental health. And that's when the depression started to creep in. And for anyone who's had any kind of issues with anxiety, you'll know that a close bedfellow is, is depression and often they can coexist. And um, I was really struggling with that. Physically, I was in pain, but also just, again, the, the fact that I couldn't do anything. I wasn't around people, already had this predisposition for it. Um, really, really struggled um, and and hit, hit rock bottom with it, really, I suppose. And... Um, that also coincided around uh, the point at which I was getting married. And again, I felt a lot of guilt because I was feeling so low with everything that was going on. But at the same time, I had this amazing thing on the horizon. And, I, you know, um, I, I was in a sense, you know, of course, really looking forward to that. So I had the stag do as you do. And I was, I was off to Germany with all my pals, RAF and back in Essex, my mates you know, I'd grown up with. Uh, my brother was there um, and, you know, absolutely hammered to be honest day one you always go too hard too soon um sat in whatever it was a mankini in a square somewhere <laughs> and i just i could hear it was like i'd gone underwater i feel and and so i could hear people talking around me and laughing and joking but it was kind of muffled and i just felt like i was on my own and everything was going on around me and i just started to well up and i started to cry and my brother i think it was spotted um, and he kind of took me to one side and I'd never really spoke to my brother about this stuff at all. We, we've got a good relationship, but we, you know, we're not as thick as thieves all the time. And um, I remember just breaking down completely full of drink, obviously, which often is the, is the catalyst, but, um, and just saying, look, I've been going through all this. I've been really depressed. I've been feeling really, really low, not feeling like I can, you know, potentially go on with it, just really struggling with it. And then obviously people start to pick up Oh, where's Mike gone. They come around the corner and they see me an absolute mess. And it's a crystallizing moment in my life. It really was. It sounds a bit Hollywood, but as, as the, you know, you don't want to tell people about this stuff, but inevitably when that happens, they're your mates and they all gathered around me. They all gave me a big hug. They said, why the fuck didn't you tell us about this? Why didn't you tell us that you've been struggling with all this? It doesn't matter. We don't think any less of you. And I remember a couple of them really, you know, giving me a big bear hug and saying, it's fine. Don't worry about it. You know, let's, we can talk about it. Let's get through it. And looking back now, it seems so stupid that I ever held it back from them because I always knew, you know, I'm very lucky to have a good group around me. But you know what it's like with lads; you just don't, you just don't tell them. But um, and, and I suppose that's you know we're trying to work against with podcasts like this and and what other work you do. But um, yeah, it was it was a real kind of opened open my eyes that you can talk about this stuff. Um, and and often what stops us doing that is the fear of consequence and the fear of being judged and laughed at and dismissed. And I realized there and then that actually that 
that's not necessarily what's going to happen. People are inherently good and they want to help you. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to make and a good thing to remember. And for anyone who's struggling and, you know, lives in fear of being mocked or judged, you know, your mates, no matter, you know, some of the laddiest sort of big mouth gobshite Larry lads I know, you know, have shown a completely different side of themselves when once you you're willing to show vulnerability. And yeah. I think that's the thing. A lot of people are just waiting for someone else to to sort of give, give them the license, aren't they? And so as hard as it is, sometimes we do that by hitting a crisis ourselves and we've got no other option but to sort of break down and, and reveal mm-hmm. to people the way we're feeling. But sometimes if you can, just be the first one to stick your hand up and say, do you know what? Sometimes I feel like shit. That's very mm-hmm. hard to do just from mm-hmm. choice. But... I would say that, you know, nine times out of 10, you'd be very surprised at, at how relieved a lot of men around you will will seem. You know what? It's so true, mate, because uh, I say I, I could count numerous mates who are either there on that day or subsequently when I've tried to talk about it, who've then come back to me and either told me that they've had a similar experience or they're worried about their friend or their girlfriend or their mum or their dad or you know someone they know i've had mates who have had experiences in their job where they've seen things or they've heard mm-hmm. things that have, have, have kind of affected them and and it's like you just it's like um it's like the damn breaks isn't it and then mm-hmm. everyone starts to, and and that's you know the, it may it humbles you when you feel like you know you maybe you've been the martyr for it by embarrassing yourself crying and your mankini but at the same time <laughs> i mean you did it in very time. spectacular style i must say i mean but, i'm uh, sitting yeah. there going oh it's quite nice when you open up but uh not many people did it in such a spectacular <laughs> way where, where were you again where did you I think you were? It, uh it was hamburg we were right in, I, I okay think, um, right. hamburg so yeah full of full of steins of of lager yeah. and, and bratwurst but um yeah it was a real um and don't get me wrong i felt pretty shit after the alcohol yeah. mainly but i felt you know exhausted by it but um it really it will it will stay with me as a day when sort of things changed i think and the, and the other thing that i think it's important I, I hope you've experienced the same is that i think part of it is you think when i become the sort of bloke who's going to be a bit more open about myself and go a, a little bit deeper mm-hmm. it, it, you know in the things that i discuss and not just stick to the basics of football or women or, or all of the other shit that we love you know spending time ch- talking about with our mates it doesn't mean that you suddenly become boring and in fact if all of your mates do it as well it doesn't mean that you'll suddenly become a bunch of weirdos or hippies who mm. can't stop sitting around and analyzing your own things it's not like that it it can just be as natural a part of a conversation of talking about what the, what the football scores were the day before you, you know it, it's something that can just like seamlessly enter into your kind of menu of conversation topics, I think. But yeah. I, I do think that blokes, but you know, people from, you know, traditional blokey backgrounds are, are worried that it's, it's not for them and them and their mates. They'd, they'd just be perceived as boring if they started mm. talking about this shit. But we'll happily moan about, you know, the hamstring niggle we've got from playing on a Sunday or the bad back we've got or yeah. the fact that we're full of man flu. It's uh, mental health has just got these different connotations as well. We'll happily have a grumble and a gripe about some of the physical aspects of our health, but not necessarily what goes on between our ears. And, and I think as well, uh, what you landed on there is something that I feel particularly passionate about. And it's really the driver for the work I'm trying to do now is, is um, making it accessible 
It doesn't have to be something very clinical. It doesn't have to be something very touchy-feely and pink and fluffy. We don't all have to sit around on our cushions with the joysticks burning all the time, like you say. Actually, it can just be something that we all live with. We've all got that as a reality in our life. So Mm. why shouldn't it feel accessible? Why can't you have a sense of humor with it? Why can't you bring your personality to it? Why can't you even have a little bit of a laugh and a joke about it? You know, uh, you know, looking back, um, we, uh, you know, I've I've done that with some of the, the meltdowns I've had and some of the conversations I've had. But what it does is it helps it feel more palatable for for the next person who, you know, they might start to be having a bit of a shit week, and instead of holding it for six months and it getting really really bad, they think, well, actually, you know, we've talked about that before. It's all right to get this stuff across. Um, you sort of, um, it seems so obvious when you sit back and look at it, but. Unfortunately, that's not the way we've been conditioned as men over the years. Um, so, like you say, well, you know, you, your life changed. You left the IRF, and and since then, you, you, in various different ways, you have made it your mission to raise awareness um, and and destigmatize this sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, it's quite a big leap, isn't it, from being, you know, not so long ago, someone who couldn't even talk about your own issues, to now devoting yeah. the whole of your life you know, to or the whole of your career, at least, to just mm-hmm. encouraging everyone to be open about this stuff. Uh, tell me about yeah. that journey. Yeah, um, and, and I have to say at the outset of it that um, I realise I'm, I'm very lucky. You know, I'm very lucky that I had support when I struggled. I'm lucky I had friends and family. I'm lucky that I had a job. I'm lucky that I had a house. I'm lucky that I had an amazing um, girlfriend at the time when I first started to struggle. She's now my wife. You know, I'm very, very lucky. Um, I, I realised that my pathway has been a lot smoother to being able to do what I do now than those who struggle with this stuff and don't have lots of those things in place. And that might sound a bit kind of high and mighty on me, but I think that's very important that I, I make that clear. The other thing is that um, it's exactly as I was describing there. I felt I felt like um, a lot of the training and stuff that was out there for workplaces, um, the, 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 the talking that went on around mental health, particularly in the workplace, but even outside of it, felt like it only focused on the crisis, um, on getting someone in crisis the help they need, which is very important. And also it could feel a little bit one size fits all and a bit clinical. And I sort of just saw a little bit of a, a, a gap there in what, what people weren't doing, which was stuff like this, like you're doing is, you know, mm. it's bringing together people to talk about it in a very real and a very accessible way. Um, so my wife, Abby and I, um, we just started to do a little bit on it and, and her background is in um, sort of marketing and communications and looking after employees within the businesses in which she's worked. I had a bit of a training background from the air force in the latter part of my career, did a lot of tra- um, kind of workplace training. Um, so I started to look more into it and thought, well, I've got a passion for this stuff. It's touched my life. It's been very important to me. I'd love other people not to feel how I felt originally when I felt like it was so hard to talk mm. and I didn't understand what the hell was going on with me. Um, so I started to look into things and I, I became a mental health first aider. And then I went on to become a mental health first aid instructor. So now I teach a lot of um, those skills, which teach us to kind of spot the signs and symptoms of those that might be struggling to intervene in a crisis and, and to signpost to professional help and other forms of support. So that first line stuff that you can support people with, again, people feel ill-equipped to deal with this stuff, even if they've got the best intentions. Um, and then it all just exploded really in terms of the opportunities you get. And I think it has been, it has been helpful being a man because we are in the minority talking about this stuff. So it's given me opportunities. And again, I've been very lucky. So I've done a lot of work with Mind, the National Mental Health Charity, kind of uh, videos on, on male mental health with them quite recently. I do a lot of training work with them. So I go into organizations and talk to their employees about how to make this stuff more accessible. I go into prisons and I talk to 
young men who've uh, been through the care system, who really struggle, you know, with lots of aspects of their life and talk to them about their mental health. Um, and then, you know, with the little company that Abby and I set up, we deliver a lot of different mental health workshops and, and talks. And, we, you know, we've done podcasts for people. We've done events. We've done all sorts of things. But the main driver for me is to normalize it because mm. I think sometimes the conversations are there and the awareness is even getting better, but it's solely reserved for that person who's in crisis or we always paint mental health as this thing where there's a problem or an issue in a very negative sense. Why don't we talk about when we're in a good place? Why don't we talk about recovery? Why don't we talk about when we first start to feel a bit shit rather than getting to the point where we're having that stag do meltdown? So um, I think, yeah, that, that's been a, a big part of, of what I've been trying to do. And when you go into, well, let's take, for example, going into prisons and speaking to young people who've been through a care system, a tough life, a life that probably cultivates you know, a particularly strong sense of keeping feelings inside mm. and, you know, sort of self-preservation, that sort of stuff. Yeah. How, how difficult is it to, to get young men to open up? Yeah, it's tough. And, and in particular, that, that, that scenario and that environment is, is very, very hard. Um, and, well, it, it is it's difficult because you have to get past the bravado. And, yeah. and how macho an environment that is. I mean, that's incomparable in terms of how, how much bravado you see there and how much self-preservation, as you say. Um, I would say, actually, some of the young men you talk to, because of how much they've been through, are quite in touch with their feelings and what goes on in their head because, actually, they've had a hell of a lot to deal with. A lot of us kind of coast through life, taking a lot for granted, and it's when something hits us from the side that we're so caught out. So some of them are quite articulate about it. But I think it's trying to make it something... Um, that, that seems accessible. So rather than getting into the nuts and bolts of, okay, this is the science behind depression and this is what's going on with the serotonin within your brain and all this kind of stuff, which has a place, don't get me wrong. I think it's making it relatable to the challenges that they're facing. So tell me about what you go through on a daily basis. Okay, how does that make you feel? What kind of things piss you off? What gets you really stressed? Acknowledging that all of us in life need help as well. And it can be really hard to admit that, but we all need help at some point with something in our lives and kind of coming together around that idea. Okay. We've accepted. We all need help at some point. What is it that you would benefit from a bit of help with? Well, actually I'm worrying about when I get out that me and my girlfriend are going to have somewhere to live, or I'm worried about getting access to an ID or writing a CV or any of these things. You have to make it pertinent to that individual because if you apply that one size fits all approach and say, come on guys, it's great to talk about our mental health. We should all be doing that it just flies over people's heads. So a lot of it's rapport building. Um, it does help being a, a bloke and they're, you know, young guys, but also it's making it pertinent to them and, and talking to somebody on their level and, and not infantilizing somebody as well, because maybe they yeah. do come from a slightly different background. I think that's something we're guilty of sometimes as well. Yeah. It can feel patronizing sometimes, can't it? Like yeah. mental health chat. But I think what you said there that really appeals to me is that thing of keeping it sort of almost practical and specific because we use, I mean, I, I, you know, like, like you say, I'm trying with this podcast to, to make things accessible. But even I, from talking about this sort of stuff a lot and reading about it a lot, you find yourself falling into using the terminology, the lexicon mm. of mental health, of the mental yeah. health world. And I think that can be inherently put off-putting. And, mm. and you're right, it's like specifics. that I can imagine how that is is powerful. What about in workplaces? Do you think workplaces are... What I mean, any I've generally speaking in my life been lucky enough to try and av avoid kind of proper jobs and corporate <laughs> environments. But whenever I have 
had the misfortune of, of working in those kind of environments. It's been a massive trigger for me, for my anxiety and other related mental mm. health things, because I find it quite suffocating and I find the human kind of interactions completely unnatural and strange. Yeah. And, and I always have, you know, I, I sort of always felt, oh, is it like, am I mad and everyone else is sane? Because it feels mm. like the other way round, you yeah. know, corporate existence is fucking strange <laughs> and i'm and, and i you know it, i'm amazed that so many people can get through it without losing their mind a company's waking up to that more now do you feel i think so before I, I explain what i think on that i think um if you kind of substituted the, the word corporate for military i think mm. that i am you in that situation I, right. I could never get to grips with this uh, totally and there's you know fantastic stuff that i was able to achieve and, and all that kind of stuff and, and opportunities i had but i never could get to grips with the you know the the strict hierarchical system and why can't i just call this person by their first name and why do i have to salute a 21 year old lad who's coming the other way when i've got my hat on but not when i haven't got my hat on <laughs> I have to use all this language yeah. and this the slang and the, I, I again i used to feel like the outsider with it and it's just, mm. what the fuck is everyone going on about what, um but um yeah, so I found that, and, I, and actually now I've had to understand a whole new terminology and environment in, in doing the work I do with the corporate environment. But um, I'd say they are waking up to it. And I think actually one of the big drivers behind that has been the pandemic, I have to mm. say. Um, obviously, I can only compare it to so much in terms of how much work I did before that. But um, I think that it's really focused the attention of workplaces on the fact that the people are what make this company work and that and you know we're not going to make any money unless we look after them and actually we've probably taken them for granted quite a bit they've also been aware of the fact that now everyone's disparate and disconnected and dislocated shit we can't keep an eye on how people are you can't notice if someone's really stressed in the workplace or someone blowing up at their desk or someone's really exhausted or crying mm-hmm. or, or whatever it might be you're not having those organic conversations you know while you're waiting for the kettle to boil when you might pick up on the fact that someone's a little bit out of sorts so i think that um, they are waking up to the idea that firstly it can't be this tick box exercise which has so long been the the criticism leveled at kind of mental health training and and kind of supporting workplaces and i'm always very conscious of that i never i never want to be in that position where that's what we do because i think sometimes that can do more harm than good because mm. people see it as that they see it as our oh, mental health it's one of those things that okay we have to attend a half an hour talk and then you know we, we move on and it's a bit of a chore so I think they're realizing that it needs to be threaded through the everyday a little more uh, mm. to be made a little more practical and to make it about what that person's struggling with. So during the pandemic, you know, people are having to work from home and homeschool their kids. That's the kind of stuff that I would be talking to people about and saying, look, I could sit and talk to you about this is what mental health is and this is what stress is. And this is, but actually I can see right now that what's causing you to pull your hair out is the fact that you're trying to hold down a full-time job, make sure your kids are safe from the virus they're tr- trying to get their homeschooling done and actually are worrying about the financial cost of it all let's talk about that let's have mm. a bit of a chat about that and as soon as one person airs their concerns you know you get other people in the room or on the call who are kind of nodding along they're resonating with it and saying yeah i've actually had a similar experience yeah i completely agree with that this is what i found useful and straight away you start to get that communal experience and a lot of the time people help themselves as much as i can kind of help i often find myself facilitating that so i think that um, the, the pandemic has, re- has kind of shone a spotlight on the necessity to look after our mental health. Because a lot of us, we probably felt like we'd never had to think about the word mental health before. We'd never had to con- concern ourselves with what goes on in here. But actually, 
now that everything's been taken away from me on a, you know, in the space of a, a few days with the first lockdown, a lot of people were really knocked sideways by it. And straight away they thought, wow, there's stuff that I've taken for granted that really kept me going. And that's why everyone was desperate to jump onto a Zoom quiz or download a house party app or never seen so many people walking as I have over the last couple of years because we've realised these are things we've always taken for granted. We've needed, you know, fresh air, exercise, community, feeling connected to something. When the football stopped, you know, that people really struggling with that. Um, There's things that we take for granted in life. And I think the pandemic has made us realise, shit, actually, there's a lot that we need to to focus on and, and workplaces have had to try and put in place a much wider variety of supports for their employees. And actually, I've heard a lot of people say to me, I've never felt so connected to my team and as close with my team as we have in the pandemic because it's been through necessity. And I, I just hope that that isn't lost when we move out the other end of whenever this nonsense finishes. <laughs> Mike, it's a real pleasure talking to you. It's fascinating you. and it's inspirational too. Um, the journey you've been on um, in a relatively short space of time from someone who's kind of suffering and keeping it all inside to now someone who's on this uh, incredible mission to mm-hmm. have us all open up. Um, you, you're a great talker on the subject and um, I congratulate you for everything you've achieved and, and let's stay in touch. Thank you very much, Sam. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Mike O'Hara, what a hero. Opening up about his mental health in the context of a successful military career was a massive deal for him. I'm always keen to find out how blokes managed to come out about their feelings, how those around them reacted and how they started getting themselves better. It's always worth doing it. If you're struggling, please tell someone. You'll often be pleasantly surprised by how your mates react. If you want to find out more about Mike's work, then visit his organisation's website, which is startwithin.co.uk. And remember to subscribe to this pod and my reset newsletter at samdelaney.substack.com. And give me a follow on Instagram if you want at the Reset Sam. Until next time, gang, be lucky. And remember, don't let the dickheads get you down. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.